Isaiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 31, that's our text. The topic there, the Lord announces his judgment upon the southern kingdom of Judah while simultaneously offering a gracious uh, forgiveness and uh, pardon if they would repent. The title of the message, God makes you an offer you can refuse. Let's pray. Father, we want to really, really start to see Isaiah the prophet in his prophecies, Lord. We want to understand his burden for the nation of Israel. And as we go through, Lord, this uh, history, we want to see ourselves when it's appropriate. We want you to work in our hearts and in our lives and in our nation. So much of Isaiah is national, Lord. It's the nation of Israel. It's the nations of the world. Isaiah looks forward, Lord, to the consummation of all things and to your restoration of all things. And, and Lord, um, we thank you for that and want to understand it better than we ever have before. And so be here, be our teacher. We ask in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, amen. Billy Graham wrote these words in a 2012 article titled, My Heart Aches for America. Some years ago, my wife Ruth was reading the draft of a book I was writing when she finished a section describing the terrible downward spiral of our nation's moral standards and the idolatry of worshiping false gods, she startled me by exclaiming, if God doesn't punish America, he'll have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. I don't see God apologizing to anyone anytime soon. Our nation is in a moral freefall. Because we did not like to retain God in our knowledge, God has gave us over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. That's from Romans chapter 1, that's verse 28. But if you want my guess and others' guesses as to where America is right now, we're in Romans chapter 1 in a death spiral towards hitting bottom. Is it too late to recover? What we're going to read this morning, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. God announced his judgment, then offered Judah forgiveness and a complete pardon. For their part, they needed only to repent, and God would relent and restore them. Was this principle exclusively for Israel? Well, no, God applied this principle to every Gentile nation in the book of Jeremiah. There he said, the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom, to pluck up, to pull down, and to destroy it, if that nation whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. We need God to relent of the disaster that he very easily could bring upon the United States. I'll organize my comments today around two points. Number one, if you repent, God relents. And number two, when God relents, you are restored. Let's take a look at repentance and relenting in verses 1 through 17. I can't emphasize enough how simultaneously thrilling and intimidating it is to comment on the book of Isaiah. Listen to the scope of the book in this quote by commentator Barry Webb. He says, the vision begins with heaven and earth being summoned to listen. It ends with their being so affected by what they hear that they are transformed into new heavens and a new earth. It is about renewal on a massive scale, the recreation of the universe, 
Isaiah's vision begins with the historical Jerusalem of his own day, corrupt and under judgment, and finishes with the end-time city of God, the new Jerusalem, the joy and delight of the whole earth. It reveals God's dealings with his people from the 8th century BC right down to our own time and beyond to the things that will bring history to a close and usher in eternity. Its sweep is huge. In a very real sense, the vision is as big as the mind of God itself. And so obviously we're not going to know everything there is to know about Isaiah and his book, but the Lord will guide and direct us by his spirit to draw out those things most needful for our walk with the Lord and for our ministry out in the world, which is to uh, tell people about Jesus Christ. Uh, Isaiah will talk about Jesus more than most Old Testament books, and he will present us with the future, especially the millennial kingdom that we talked about so much in the book of the Revelation uh, and uh, the promises that God has made uh, to Israel and to the nations of the world. And so we put in at verse 1 the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. The nation of Israel divided after King Solomon died. The north was called Israel. The south with Jerusalem was called Judah. Ten tribes to the north in Israel, two tribes to the south in Judah. I mentioned Billy Graham. He had the privilege of ministering to 12 sitting U.S. presidents. What a joy it was to to know that the gospel was being represented uh, to 12 U.S. presidents, starting with Truman, uh, continuing through Obama. Isaiah ministered to four sitting kings of Judah. Uh, And so there's a similarity there just to think of Isaiah having that kind of access, being able to influence these men, or at least try to. Verse 2, hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children. They have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know my people do not consider. Were Jews dumb and dumber like donkeys and oxen? Well, the answer to that is no, because donkeys and oxen are smarter than they were. They knew to go home where they would get fed and watered and groomed and be taken care of and be protected, whereas the children of God wandered farther and farther away or further and further away. I can never figure out that. Uh, But they wandered away uh, from God where God could no longer help them, uh, where they were under these idols and and the, the influence and the inference of these idols and such. And so in a sense, they were dumber than donkeys. And so verse 4, a last sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a brood of evildoers, children who are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked to anger the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away backward. <clears throat> Why should you be stricken again? You will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick and the whole heart faints. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it. But wounds and bruises and putrefying sores They have not been closed or bound up or soothed with ointment. This reads like God finding his people somewhere, and this is their spiritual, you know, the outward condition he's describing is really describing their inward spiritual condition. You know, in procedural cop shows on television, there's always that scene where they have to enter the abandoned warehouse, and it's full of heroin addicts at various stages of, you know, uh, life and death, barely alive, uh, strung out on drugs and all, and then they finally find uh, you know whoever it is they're looking for, and they're they're just a mess. 
And that, that's a picture that Isaiah might have used today if he was talking about this same situation. When Jesus wrote to the church in Laodicea, in the book of the Revelation, he said, you say I'm rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. So outwardly and socially, they, that described them. Jesus said, you don't realize you are wretched, miserable, blind, poor, and naked. Their actual spiritual condition was way different. We need the Spirit of God who indwells us to show us our true condition personally and nationally. Now, this is very hard because we lie to ourselves. Uh, well, I'm sorry, I lie to myself. And I, I don't know if you do, but I think it's human nature. And it's really hard for us to get an accurate picture uh, of ourselves. The Lord has to help us with that. And so maybe as kind of an exercise, you think, hey, uh, how, would, how would I be depicted if, you know, would I be the heroin addict in the... Uh, uh, you know, warehouse, is my life full of putrefying sores and terrible immoralities and such? And, and so just think of an image that really would describe you and, and with the Lord's help. And, and, you know, he wants to get you out of that kind of, they, they, you know, the cops find you in there and they take you out and they clean you up and the next thing you know, you're a hero, right? Uh, and so that's what the Lord wants to do for us. But we need to be honest with him and let him tell us our true condition. Verse seven, your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Strangers devour your land in your presence. It is desolate as overthrown by strangers. So the daughter of Zion is left as a booth in a vineyard, as a hut in a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. Booths and huts were like today's pop-up tents. When invaders hit the land, they would encounter these folks working in the fields first under their booths and uh, tents, you know, in order to keep uh, away from the sun, they would easily be destroyed by the invading army. Then they would overrun the outlying cities, and then they would get to Jerusalem, the walled city, and they would encamp all around it so that there was no ingress or egress. And depending on how much is the Jerusalem had stored up, that's how long they could last a siege. And so the the army wasn't that surrounded them wasn't really in any hurry. Uh, unless they got called away to another battle or something like that, they could wait it out because you, you, you would eventually, you know, as you read about in some of the Old Testament books, they would have to resort to cannibalism uh, because they were out of food. Finally, somebody would say, I'm opening the gate. I would rather die than continue to die here. And, and that was siege warfare in the day. Verse 9, unless the Lord of hosts had left to us a very small remnant, we would have become like Sodom, we would have been made like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom, give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. So here he's saying that Judah had become a spiritual Sodom and Gomorrah. It was evident by their sexual sin. Ezekiel chapter 16 and Leviticus chapter 18 agree with what Jude wrote in his New Testament letter when he said, Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to them have given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh. The Apostle Paul, I mentioned Romans chapter 1, he described a nation in a downward spiral in terms of their sexual immorality. The more sexually immoral they are, the farther they are in that death spiral. He said it this way, 
For even their women exchange the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. It seems like just when you think sexual immorality can't get any more immoraler, like that, I made that up, a new sinful behavior is accepted, then legalized, and then pushed upon believers. Uh, I, I think that's an accurate description of what's going on in our country in many areas. Sexual sin, especially when called good and legitimized, is a strong indicator that God has withdrawn from a nation and that he is just letting that nation do its own thing. Gotta love that word remnant. A remnant is a leftover amount from a larger portion or piece. No matter how bleak the outlook, God, by his amazing providence, always has believers to keep history moving towards the proper providential uh, consummation. Herman Melville, in his 1950 novel, White Jacket, wrote this, We Americans are the peculiar chosen people, the Israel of our time. We bear the ark of the liberties of the world. America is a great nation, maybe the greatest nation of all time, but we are a great Gentile nation, and we are not Israel. We, do not, uh, we are not God's peculiar chosen people. We are not the Israel of our time or any time. We bear no ark to the world. We are a Gentile nation and need to be understood in this book as a Gentile nation. Israel is Israel. America is America. God has made promises to his ethnic uh, people, Israel, the descendants of Abraham, not their spiritual descendants, but their physical descendants. And God holds all other nations accountable, and that includes us. And so with that, we can glean stuff from the Bible and from the book of Isaiah, but we need to be careful not to confuse Israel and the United States. To what purpose, verse 11, is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I don't delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I can't endure iniquity and the sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They're troubling to me. I am a weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear you. Your hands are full of blood. The elaborate yet beautiful rules and rituals that God set for Israel in the law of Moses in order to worship him were never meant to take the place of a personal relationship with God through faith. And so the people were coming to the temple, going through the motions of worship, sacrificing animals, uh, making their vows, spending their time in prayer, and then quickly running from the temple to these other locations where uh, idol worship was taking place, uh, and their heart filled with lust and desire to be away from God and with these other practices. And so God says, hey, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. Don't come to temple anymore while your hands are full of blood uh, because of your wickedness. And, and this is strong. I don't know if we understand really 
what it took for Isaiah to say things like this. I mean, I'm talking to you about what Isaiah said to Judah. But imagine if I was saying this to you. Don't come back to Calvary Chapel. Get out of here because all your sacrifices are fake and phony. Go now. Oh, pastor goes insane. <laughs> Local pastor, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, seriously, that's, these, guys, these guys were courageous. Later on, I'll give you a sneak peek at a chapter later on in Isaiah. God told them to walk around naked for a while because they were going to be taken captive and led away naked. And, of course, the commentators said, well, he wasn't really naked. Uh, yeah, yeah, he was. <laughs> and it, it's, it, you know, because it was shameful. They said, well, they wouldn't let him be naked because it's shameful. Yeah, that's the idea. And so th- when you're a Jew hearing these things, you can understand why they killed all the prophets, right? The New Testament says they killed all the prophets. And it's because they didn't want to hear the truth like this. Uh, uh, and so, God forgive them. Verse 16, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. And so the Lord is saying, hey, return to me and embody the virtues that God intends a nation to promote. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Those are universal principles for any nation, Israel or Gentile. It's what we ought to be doing uh, a lot in our nation. Now, Jonah, our friend who's in the fish, was sent by God to Nineveh. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Their king said, who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Then God saw their works that they turned from their evil way and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them and he did not do it. This was the reason Jonah did not want to preach to Nineveh. They deserved judgment and he had a suspicion that they might repent and not get judged. And so God saw to it providentially that he had a ride to Nineveh. Uh, Very interesting time in the fish. And uh, it's where he wrote Pinocchio as well. But uh, no. <laughs> little known work of Jonah. <clears throat> no, actually, Pinoc- Pinocchio is a great Italian story. I have to say that. <laughs> well, it is. When judgment is announced, grace intervenes. Uh, isn't that what you're getting from this? Judgment on Judah. Judgment on Nineveh. Grace intervenes. Repent and God will save When God relents, you are restored, verses 18 through 31. When we say God relents, even though that's what the Bible says, it hits a theological nerve in some believers concerning the sovereignty of God. If a man can do something that moves God to do something else than what he said he was going to do, the whole fabric of the universe is going to be destroyed because they say God is not sovereign. And so they have all these excuses, like in Nineveh, Uh, You know, they say, well, this was a pagan king and he didn't really understand the mind of God. But it's clear that, you know, God told Jeremiah, God told Nineveh uh, that if they would repent, he would relent. God is sovereign, obviously, and his sovereignty includes his relenting in response to repentance. 
We see it in Jonah, we see it in Jeremiah, we see it in Isaiah, we see it everywhere. And it is an offer that you can refuse. In, another, in that same spot in Jeremiah where he said this, he said, now if you don't repent, then I will do the judgment that I said I was going to do. And so it's up to the nation to respond to the gospel. And so verse 18, come now, let us reason together. Who knows this as a song? Do you remember this song? Who, come on now, I'm going to make you sing. I'm not going to sing it alone. No? Anybody know, come now, let us reason together, you and I? Really? Who, where did you grow up? No? Do we not sing that? Who's in the worship? We don't sing that? Come now, let us... Uh, you can do the women's part. Thus saith the Lord. Okay, ready? Come now, let us reason together, you and I. Come now, let us reason together, you and I. Thus saith the Lord. Come now, though your sins be as scarlet, come now, though they be red as crimson, come now, I will make them as white as snow. Thank you. I'll be here all. <laughs> reason together is in a tense that means listen to reason. You, if you're not saved, you need forgiveness and your sins to, to be put behind you. And as far as from the east is from the west is from the Lord. And so you need to listen to reason and receive God's offer. That's what it means. Not let's enter into a dialogue with God. He said, no, just you need to listen to reason. You can't be saved anyplace else, anywhere else by anybody else. And so come to me and let's get this restoration going. Where can you find forgiveness and complete pardon from your sin? Only at Golgotha, the place of the skull, where the Savior died on the cross, lifted up on the cross so that he might draw all men to himself, that whosoever would believe would be saved. God has made an incredible offer to individuals and to nations. Let's listen to reason, repent, and be restored. Verse 19 if you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God made both unconditional and conditional promises to Israel. His gift of the land was unconditional. And that's why we believed that Israel would be a nation again, while others who didn't read the Bible said, no, that's never going to happen. They're scattered all over the world. The, the nation of Israel is over. And then in May of 1948, they became a nation again because God has promised them their land. It belongs to them, and they will inhabit it. But at the same time, the blessing of them in their land was conditional upon their obedience. Now, the, in Judah's, in this time here of Isaiah, in Judah, you read in Jeremiah that they thought God wouldn't judge them in the south because they had the temple. They had watched in the north as the Assyrian army, one of those brutal peoples of all time, had come and destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel and put huge fish hooks through their jaws and dragged them away naked and screaming. And yet they said, well, that's not going to happen to us because we have the temple. So Jeremiah has a sermon where he goes, oh, the temple, the temple, you say the temple. He would do that while they were coming to church. Again, can you imagine that? Calvary, oh, Calvary, you come to Calvary Chapel. Get out of here. Can we kill that guy? Can we throw him in a pit or something? So these people were, they were getting hit by God's prophets who were obedient, but they weren't really obeying. 
We need to be careful to think that outward blessing equates to godliness, especially in the church age when weakness and suffering have high value as a currency in heaven. Verse 21, how the faithful city has become a harlot. It was full of justice, righteousness lodged in it, but now murderers. An idol-worshiping Jew left the temple after sacrificing his lamb and sacrificed his infant son to Molech. Your silver has become dross, your wine mixed with water. Economic collapse and shortage of essentials is not fun. It's no joke that the phrase, have you checked your 401k lately, has become a cultural catchphrase. Reminds us of a few more things Jesus said to the Laodiceans. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. I touched upon this a moment ago. Heaven has its own currency valued much higher than the world's. And so the Laodiceans, they, how do you buy gold refined in the fire from the Lord? How do you buy his white garments and all? By faith. And so they needed to return to the Lord or turn to the Lord by faith and be rich in faith, not in these outward things. Verse 23, your princes are rebellious, companions of thieves. Everyone loves bribes and follows after rewards. They do not defend the fatherless, nor does the cause of the widow come before them. Bribes and outright theft in government are awful. I find it worse that it's become expected. I understand. I don't watch a lot of news because I'm already depressed enough. You know, I don't have to get any more depressed. But I think a bunch of illegal stuff has been going on in our country for the last hundred years, at least. But anyway, there's some, and and you know, people, people, there are even people being accused of murder. You know, I won't say who, Clintons, but people, you know, it's like, oh yeah, they murder people. What are we, uh, I know it's kind of funny, but it's not, right? This is our leadership. This is the leadership of the United States of America. People who can't figure out, and this is on both sides right now, right? What is a classified document? I don't know, but I got some near my Corvette. You have some in Miralaga. They're floating all over the place, you know? And, 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 you know, the director of the FBI is going to the World Economic Forum. I mean, everything is in absolute chaos, and we're like, eh, eh. By we, I mean our nation, our leadership. Where is, can anybody stand up and, and start this thing in the right course? Well, we need a revival. That's what we need because it's way out of control. Verse 24, therefore the Lord says, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, I will rid myself of my adversaries and take vengeance on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you and thoroughly purge away your dross and take away all your alloy. For a time, the Incredible Hulk was the champion of Sakaar, in their arena combat. Could you imagine being on the card with him? You go to see who you're fighting. Oh, I'm fighting the Incredible Hulk. That's not going to take long. And here God says, I'm, you're my enemy. You're my adversary. The United States doesn't need God as an opponent. We need him as our ally. And so we need to turn to him. Verse 26, I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed with justice and her penitence with righteousness. We're talking here about the nation of Israel, the city of Jerusalem, not some other place. This nugget is dropped in to give the remnant hope. God calls them penitents, a word meaning those who repent. 
The remnant and any who may yet repent would see the restoration of Jerusalem. Uh, you say, well, how does, why does a believer have to repent? Read the prayers of Daniel in his book when he realized that God was bringing them back to the land. He repented on behalf of the nation, which I think is just him acknowledging what is true about his nation at the time. And that's all I'm doing today. I think, I hope, without going too far or not far enough, is acknowledging this is where our nation is at this time. Now, this isn't guaranteeing that each and every one of the Jews who heard this would live to physically see Jerusalem restored. They saw it by faith. Father Abraham had the promise, and the promise was enough for him. The Bible says he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God, but he never saw that city, the new Jerusalem. But knowing that, having God's promise that it was true, he believed it, and in a sense, he didn't need to see it. He, you know, the, he had faith enough to believe that. When you have God's promises in his word, you don't need to see them fulfilled in a way that you think they ought to be. You can rest and find contentment knowing that God cannot lie. And so the big promise that we like is all things work together for the good to them that love the Lord and are called according to his purposes. But you may not live to see how all of that comes together in your life. You know what, though? It is true because God, who cannot lie, said it was true. And so you might, you know, I know, it's like, well, when is God going to show me what he's talking about, why I'm going through this trial, why this happened, why that? He may not, because you, and you don't need to know, and you don't need to see it, because he's promised you that it's going to work together for your good. And that's really all that you need to know, because anything else would be too heavy. Uh, you, you probably couldn't process it. Uh, you probably just start smoking out your ears, you know? I mean, it just, the Lord knows what's good for you. Verse 28, the destruction of transgressors and of sinners shall be together. Those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed, for they shall be ashamed of the terebinth trees which you have desired, and they shall be embarrassed because of the gardens which you have chosen. For you shall be as a terebinth whose leaf fades, and as a garden that has no water. The strong shall be as tinder, and the work of it as a spark. Both will burn together, and no one shall quench them. The trees in the garden spoken of here were the sites of idol worship. They would go out to these places set up with idols. You've heard the expression, turn or burn. That's what Isaiah is predicting here. These idol, idols and their places of worship were going to be burned in judgment, and they needed to turn away from them before that happened. We need to be careful when we discuss idolatry to not take cheap shots at people for having, let's say, a hobby that they enjoy. You know, we typically say anything can be an uh, idol. That's true. Or we, you know, we pick certain hobbies, you know, and that obviously they could be an idol. But I think idolatry is a lot more sinister than just whatever hobby you have. Uh, you know, I, and so, you know, what I think here uh, it would be better for us to see, you know, these gods, little g gods that Israel worshipped, what were they all about really? What was the bottom line when they worshiped these gods. Well, most scholars agree that the three big little gods that they worshiped were Baal, Asherah, and Molech. Baal comes to signify all types of material prosperity in the Bible. Asherah was worshiped with practices of sexual immorality. Molech was the idol upon which babies were burned, as I said earlier. As a nation, we worship these gods. 
As far as I can tell, the so-called prosperity gospel is an American invention. Its adherents believe that power is given to believers to bind and loose spiritual forces, turning the spoken word into reality. Faith is demonstrated in wealth and health, making material reality the measure of success of immaterial faith. And this is uh, something that's out there in the general culture as well. Uh, we, we um, you, know, you know, God, we, we like to prosper. You know, we, we do. Now, God has no problem with people being wealthy. Uh, there's no voluntary vow of poverty when you become a Christian. Uh, you know, we're not all the rich young ruler who need to give away everything in order to serve the Lord. Uh, but each of us individually needs to decide what's going on with our monies and things like that and not be stumbled by it. Uh, but again, prosperity is a goal that we have, and it can get out of hand, and it has in the church. When I say the health and wealth gospel, there are millions of Christians around the world who are involved in this kind of thing. Now, getting more closer to home in our nation, we have legalized all manner of sexual immorality while simultaneously nuking biblical morality. And if that's not an Asherah worship, I don't know what is. Uh, just If you've been live long enough to think 10 years ago, some of the things that are being touted right now would be unheard of 10 years ago, even from uh, liberal commentators. I mean, it's an, there's an explosion of sexual immorality and a, a, you know, an attack on biblical morality at the same time. Now, we don't burn babies, but we do abort them by the millions, 64 million in these United States since the procedure was legalized. And the techniques used are brutal and violent. Forget that it's the United States for a minute. If, if you and I were in a conversation and say, hey, this nation over here, uh, they have committed uh, or allowed 64 million babies to be aborted that we know of, that we have statistics on. What do you think about that? Do you think that they should be judged by God? Yeah. Well, that's us, right? So I don't know how much longer this thing can go on. I'm not predicting anything, but... Um, we worship these three gods and others, I'm sure, but we certainly worship these. A.W. Tozer wrote, have you noticed how much praying for revival has been going on of late and how little revival has resulted? I believe the problem is that we have been trying to substitute praying for obeying, and it simply will never work. Evangelist Charles Finney said something similar. He said, a revival is nothing else than a new beginning of obedience to God. And so that's what we need individually. That's what we need as a church. That's what the nation needs, a revival of uh, beginning of new obedience to God. Isaiah will have a new beginning of obedience to God when he has a vision of the Almighty in chapter 6 and utters the famous phrase, here am I, send me. If you're not a believer, you obey God by receiving his indescribable gift, Jesus Christ, by faith, uh, you just receive him. It's a gift of grace. You take it. Christmas isn't that far behind us, right? You got some gifts for Christmas. You took them and you opened them. You didn't take them and, and hide them away. God says, my son dying on the cross is a gift for you. I'm giving it to you. All you need to do is take it for yourself and believe it. And so what you say here is, here am I, save me. Here am I, Lord, save me. If you're a believer, you're going to want to spend some time with the Lord, and at the end of it, you're going to want to say too, here am I, send me. 
with a renewed vision and excitement for wherever God has planted you in order to be an example and an exhorter of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When judgment is certain, grace intervenes. Judgment, if something doesn't happen, the judgment of our nation is certain. But God intervenes with grace and always gives opportunity to, for repentance. If a nation repents, God will relent. 